Okay, let's pray and see what Jesus wants to do. Lord, we love you. And we need you. Lord, what we need more than anything else is your word and just your word to our hearts, your presence. We are asking for our daily bread today, specifically the daily bread of your provision and your presence in our lives, your word. We need to be guided by you. We need to be led by you. We need to be loved by you. So, Lord, just come. Please, Lord, be yourself with us. We're quite aware of our inadequacies, faults. Uh, the accuser of the brethren, the devil, is really good at his job, telling us at how bad we are at ours. And so we just need our advocate, Jesus, to come and set us aright again, speak truth into our hearts, and give us courage in our hearts. We ask for these things boldly and plainly, simply, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last weekend, Kelsey and I finally saw The Martian. And for those of you who don't know about the movie, it's about Mark Watney. Mark Watney is um, the astronaut who gets left for dead on Mars and is actually alive. And so the rest of the movie, based on a book, is about the Herculean efforts of the crew and of NASA to get Mark Watney back from Mars. And somewhere in the midway point of that movie, there is the first attempt to rescue him. And the first attempt involves the launching of a probe called Iris. And for those of you who have seen the movie, and there's no spoiler here, I won't give away the ending of the movie, but this part, the Iris probe explodes on its launch. And so their first attempt to get Mark does not work. And it's in that place where Mark says something really profound. It was a quote that just hit me like um, a ton of bricks when Kelsey and I were watching the movie. And he is not giving up, as he says, but he now has email access with his commander, Melissa. And he says to her, hey, I realize that you may have the job of telling my parents that I don't make it. What, a, what an awful job that is. But he says, this is what I wanted, want you to tell to my parents. He says, please tell them that I love what I do and I'm really good at it. And he says, and that I'm dying for something big and beautiful and greater than me. Tell them, I said, I can live with that. Good stuff. Please tell them. Tell them, I love what I do. I'm really good at it. And that I'm dying for something big and beautiful and greater than me. Tell them, I said, I can live with that. Mark Watney this character, main character of The Martian, was able to sum up his life and in essence say, it was good. It's really good. I love what I do. I'm good at it. And I'm okay dying for it because I'm dying for something bigger. Last week, Brian launched us into this series called The Good Life. And in it, Brian posed this question. He said, is this good life that Jesus calls us to, a life that is marked by a countercultural Suffering in a countercultural self-sacrifice. Is it really worth it? And I want to continue to address that question, this time by looking at a couple other questions. Does Jesus want us to enjoy life as Mark Watney seemed to have? Does Jesus 
want us to enjoy life like that? And if so, to whom does Jesus grant this kind of good life? To whom does Jesus allow people to say, yes, I like what I do, I'm good at it, and I'm willing to lay down my life for it. And to do this, we're going to look at two more of the Beatitudes. Because that's what we're looking at during this Lenten season. We're going to look at Matthew 5.5 5 and Matthew 5.8. And we'll get there in a second. But as Brian indicated last week, we are in a very dynamic early part of Jesus' ministry. Things are hopping for Jesus. He's moved from Nazareth. He's birthed his ministry here in Capernaum. And uh, he's calling disciples. And let's just show exactly um, what... This, you know, he pulls some guys aside onto a mountain. And, and I think because things are so dynamic, because A, he's speaking with great authority, right? The, the Jews have never heard this kind of authority and truth that he's speaking with. But they also are blown away by the power that's coming out, right? Jesus is healing people. People who have had lifelong difficult conditions are getting healed. And so we see here, most likely, here we hear Sea of Galilee in uh, Palestine, Israel, and look kind of the northwest corner of this lake, likely where Jesus pulled people out of the city was here on this mountain. And the scene probably looks something like this. And in this dynamic point of ministry, Jesus is starting to make a divide. He's saying, hey, all right, I've got this big fan club, but now I want to see who really wants to follow me. And when Jesus starts to separate out who's going to follow me, who really wants to walk this kingdom walk. He starts to say things like these beatitudes. And as Brian also indicated last week, we may better better understand these sayings instead of saying, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If we start to say, the good life belongs to the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so to look at this question of, does Jesus really want us to have the good life, a kind of good life that say, astronaut Mark Watney, fictional guy, enjoyed. We're looking at Matthew 5, 5, Matthew 5, 8. The good life is for the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the good life is for the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So let's start with the first one, the meek. And I want to back into this. And when I say I want to back into this, I want us to start with the character of God. Okay. If the good life is for, if blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's start with inheriting the earth. Let's start with God's desire. God's desire is that you and me, that we inherit the earth. God is not grabbing for power. He's not holding on to everything as it's just his. But he is wanting you and I to inherit the earth. God wants to give stuff away. Just think of how phenomenal the earth is. Mountains and lakes and jungles, rivers, deserts. The whole earth is crying out, God is awesome. And there's adventure to be had. And he's not holding on to the adventure for himself. He's saying, I want to give this adventure away. And we know from Genesis that he is wanting to give dominion away to us. Right? He wants us to rule and reign over this mystery and over this beauty and over this adventure. God's desire is that we inherit the earth. And I believe that when he says that, he's tapping precisely into the longing many of us have to live lives like Mark Watney, saying, I love what I do. I'm good at it, right? I'm dominating in my little corner of the earth. And I'm willing to give it away. That's exactly what God is tapping into when he says, I want some other guys to inherit the earth. 
See, God wants to give stuff away. And we see it mirrored in our natural life, do we not? Kelsey and I are raising JD and Hannah. And so we're teaching them how to dress themselves, how to brush their teeth. We're teaching them how to handle finances, actually little by little. JD brought an envelope a couple weeks ago with his tithe, which was really fun. Uh, We're teaching them how to how to live. And eventually, you know, we're teaching them how to pray. We're teaching them how to share Jesus. And eventually, when Kelsey and I, when our lives are over, we're going to give our fortunes to them. We give things away. It's the same in your work life cycles. You know, as a 20-year-old, you have something to prove. And you're trying to show, I'm good at this. And here's what I'm doing. As you hit 40s and 50s, you're thinking, I want to give this away. Right? What I've learned, 40s, 50s, 60s, I want to start to raise up other people who can do it better than I do. God wants to give stuff away. In this life, and clearly, he really wants to give stuff away in the next as well. So when God says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, I think he's not just speaking about this life, but he's speaking about the life to come. Mark Watney's words, again, point us to eternity. All throughout the New Testament, we are called co-heirs with Jesus, right? We are inheriting something with him. We're inheriting a kingdom and a world. And though at this point here on earth, we see through a mirror dimly, we can't fully understand what this power sharing will look like. Paul says something really fun in 1 Corinthians 2.9. He says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. All right? He is wanting us to inherit the earth. That's a now thing and it's a forever thing. And don't you know the same God who created the mountains, rivers, deserts, and all the things that give us adventure in this world, don't you know that he's wanting you to rule over a part of it in this life and in the age to come. Don't you know that he knows? He fashioned your heart. Don't you know that he knows what's going to bless you? And as you come into your dominion, what that's going to look like. So let's just get it straight. We start the character of God. He's wanting to give stuff away. The question is, to whom will he entrust these things? To whom can he entrust the adventure and the joy And the rulership of this world and this life in the age to come. Now we get to the front part. Blessed are the meek. Right? The good life belongs to the meek. Now we read meek and certain images, perhaps from your Sunday school. I know we had pictures like this in the church growing up. When I think of meek. I kind of think of this kind of picture of Jesus that we'd hanging up in the narthex of our church growing up. You know, kind of sissy, you know, to be honest. Is that what Jesus is saying? Blessed are the sissies. Be like me. Have some sheep floating around and just be nice to people. Who does Jesus want to share his authority with and dominion of the world with? The meek. It's not the wolves of Wall Street. It's not the warriors of this world. But it's with the meek. Let's figure out what he means by meek. From Merriam-Webster's dictionary, it says this. Having, meek means, having or showing a quiet and gentle nature. 
not wanting to fight or argue with other people. Pretty good. I love the next level, though. Next level is this. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. My experience tells me that it takes very powerful, very strong, and very secure people to endure injury with patience and without resentment. The biblical definition of meekness is this, strength with love. Okay, strength and also love. Psalm 62, 11 and 12 says this, One thing God has spoken, two things I've heard. Power belongs to you, O Lord, and with you is unfailing love. In other words, God's got both. He's got great power, but he's also got love. Isaiah 40, 10 to 11, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense, like his reward, is before him. That's strength, that's might, that's power. Boom, next verse, listen to this switch. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. He's strong, and he's powerful. The very verses, then next in Isaiah, we've got two great sections. The very verses that we kind of claim at the harbor is capstone verses. Isaiah 42, a picture of Jesus, says in verse 2, he will not cry out or make his voice heard. Kind of like Brian's illustration. He's not saying, me, let me get in line first. He's not that way. And the Isaiah 53 picture of Jesus paints the same one. He says he's like a sheep led to slaughter. He didn't cry out. There's some meekness there. It's helpful for me to think about the opposite. And I have a little theory. Okay, this is Neil Hubacher's psychological theory of why the world is messed up. And it goes like this. It goes that basically men on the earth are the problem. And basically all men who have power and no love are why everything's wrong on the earth. Unfathered men who just, you know, every rape, every shooting, every killing, every problem. I mean, everything except tsunamis, you know, and earthquakes are because men are out of control. That's my theory. I have zero nods right now. Okay. Hey, let me just illustrate a little bit. <laughs> let me draw you in. Let me make my case. Here it is. In the mid-2000s, out of Connecticut, there is this incredible high school football player. He actually, in his offensive uh, work, he broke several records for the state of Connecticut. In his defensive work, he tied several records for the state of Connecticut. His dad and his dad's twin brother, so his uncle, were kind of wild men. But it wasn't until they had kids that they started to calm down. But sadly, this football player's dad died at 16 years old of cancer. And that's when, according to his mom, the rebellion against authority really started. Well, this guy would head down to Florida. He'd play for the Gators, for Urban Meyer. And uh, he um, also got a lot of awards from the NCAA for his work. And he was on the BCS championship team. The Gators won. And uh, he was a part of that team as a junior, I believe. And then as a senior, entered the NFL draft. I think you know where he is right now, don't you? It's not Tim Tebow. Oh, to God that it was Tim Tebow. <laughs> He's actually in Massachusetts's most high-tech maximum security prison right now. Number 81, Aaron Hernandez. 
Okay? June 2013, he killed a... He's been committed... or Sorry, he's been convicted of killing um, a semi-pro football player. And as Aaron Hernandez's life kind of unraveled back in 2013, we just got this picture. This is what I'm talking about. Raw power, right? This guy is out of control, good, awesome in football. And he's... He just got everything, you know? And as a young man, all of a sudden, he's making millions and millions of dollars. There's enormous potential to do good. But he's just an unfathered man, an unbridled. So not only has he been convicted right now with no possibility of parole in Massachusetts, but there's a few other murders and um, an assault that are now pending that he will get charged with next. And we just get this picture of a man totally out of control. A 20-something-year-old who in his heart is still a 13-year-old and how he acts. That's what I'm talking about. The opposite picture would be, say, the picture of Superman who rescues the baby and returns her to the mother. Incredible power at his disposal, but has it all focused in service of others and in love of others. That's meekness. That's meekness. See, we all want to dominate we all want to dominate the world. It's just how we do it. A couple of weeks ago, me and my son played Risk for the first time. You know, let's just start training world domination early. <laughs> and at my goal, the goal in the first round, this first game was, okay, JD, let's just learn how the moves go, right? Like first you get your armies, then you deploy them, learn how the attacks go, three dice, two dice, you know, this is how this goes. And he started to like get it. And he actually, he lasted for quite a while, didn't you? World domination is on every child's heart because as for the game is wrapping up and, you know, my yellow armies are just everywhere. And I was a good dad. I was not, I didn't just dominate. I, I was, you know, it was an instructional time. But, you know, by the end there, a lot of yellow, a lot of me. Green armies, not too many territories. And JD says, Daddy, why don't we switch and you let me be yellow? I said, Okay. Even at six years old, world domination is an option. But the meekness that Jesus talks about is also, I've heard it described as like a bridled horse, right? Under that horse, there's so much power, so much energy, so much potential. But bridled, he's controlled in the service of his master, of his rider. That's, we will inherit the earth, inherit all that God has for us as we walk into that meekness. Power in the service of good. Power in the service of others. See, God gives the good life to those who don't grab. In our natural, you and I want to grab for power. We want to grab for control. But God gives the good life to those who don't grab. So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Secondly, we want to look at blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And likewise, I want to back into this and start with the character of God. Let's look at the back half of that clause. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Guess what God is like? Guess what he wants to do? He wants to reveal himself to you and me. He wants to be known. He wants to, this invisible spirit that's all-powerful, he wants to be seen to you and me. He wants to be known. Now, again, let's take another sample from our own experience. Who do you want to be known by? Who do you share yourself with, but with safe people? Right? 
Whenever someone asks me, how are you? How are you doing, Neil? In about, you know, a nanosecond, I have to make a judgment call. How deep do I want to go right here? There's all sorts of variables that come in, right? What's my experience with this person been up till now? How long have we known each other? Where are we? You know, are we in the middle of the train station? Or are we like in my living room? All sorts of variables come into play, right? When someone asks, how are you? And, you know, often I know they want something of me in the sense of like, they don't want me to just say fine. You know, things like our mood and what's going on that day, our blood sugar probably come into play. So you and I, we are only known, we let people in when we feel safe, honored, loved, respected. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God, who does God want to be seen by? Who is God going to be known by? Who does God want to let into who he is and what he's up to? The scripture would indicate the good life belongs to the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I have to be honest. When I read this, and as I've read this over years and years, for a long time, my emotional response to this verse was, dang it. (laughs) You know, honestly, because of my own lust issues, because of the overwhelming uh, sense of impurity in my heart regards to my sexuality, I just thought, I'm not, you know, forget you. See you later, God. I won't see you for a long, long, long time. Will only those who get their act together enjoy the good life of relationship with God, of seeing the invisible God made visible? I can't tell you how often in my work here I have the privilege of sitting around the table with men and women who feel the same way. In other words, feel so defeated in the area of purity, so defeated in the area of sexual purity specifically, that they also have just put themselves out of this category, unable to experience God because of awareness of their own filth. So, for sure, do we need to be pursuing freedom from lust? Is there grace not to be ruled by sexual addiction? Absolutely. But maybe purity of heart is more than just eliminating a behavior. But maybe it's also a posture of the heart as well. That's what I want to look at right now. Perhaps purity of heart has to do with, or begins with, I should say. Perhaps purity of heart begins with a humble awareness of our capacity and tendency to be so easily deceived. Perhaps purity of heart begins when we recognize that motive counts. God cares about our motives, and he cares about why we do what we do. The prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 17, verse 9, says this. You're probably familiar with this verse. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The devotional writer and speaker and awesome man of God, John Eldridge, is correct to push back on the church and say that we should not take this verse on as an identity. You know, too many of us in the church just say, yep, that's me. You know, I mean, that's been my problem as well. My challenge as well. My heart's sick. I know it. Peace. I'm done. And John Eldridge appropriately says, stop. That's not your identity. Your identity is 
We sing it here a lot in the mornings, right? On Sunday we sing, I am a child of God, right? I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. That song always brings me to, well, it brings me to intimacy is what it does. So that's true. You are a child of God. But Jeremiah 17 is true also. We are pretty deceived, and we need to know that about ourselves. Proverbs 20 would agree, and it says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. Right? We don't even know our own purposes all the time. We're such a mixed bag of motives. But as I'm suggesting here, perhaps purity of heart has to do with an awareness that our motives are an awfully mixed bag of addition to affirmation, you know, fear of man, all manner of selfishness, and we just need someone to help. We need someone greater than us to sort through our motives and lead us to purity of heart. Let me illustrate this with two scriptures side by side as well. I just think it's fun that in your Bible, they're actually kind of right next to each other. The Apostle Paul saved some of his greatest, most powerful, most awesome words for his protégés, the people that he was mentoring. And so in 2 Timothy, you know, Paul spent a lot of time with Timothy, developing him. And, and Paul kind of pulls out the stops here, trying to remind Timothy and his people of something. And this, these verses have the same effect on me as Matthew 5.8 does, which is, I, I often you know, would read this and go, ah, I'm disqualified, Lord help. But it goes like this. Now, you can just picture this, what a great illustration um, Paul has. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. You can hear him saying to Timothy, Timothy, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And don't you know where the command is implied here? Then there's a grace implied as well, right? Where the command is cleanse yourself from what's unholy. And you got the Holy Spirit. Hopefully a lot of the time you're knowing what's unholy in your life as God sorts through your motives. And Paul's saying, look, you need to cleanse yourself, Timothy, from what is unholy so you can be fully available to God. It's not unlike what God was saying to Joshua before they were going to the promised land. He said, consecrate yourselves today because tomorrow we're going to take the land. It's the same thing. I mean, I'm saying there is a truth here from the kingdom that if we want to participate in all that God has for us, we've got to turn from our idols and turn to God. We have to cleanse ourselves from that which is filthy in our hearts and turn to him. But the good news is we are not alone in that fight. The good news is God's made every provision for us to walk in purity of heart. Because then you just turn one page over to the book of Titus. Another one of Paul's protégés. Another one of the people that Paul was investing in. He says this in Titus 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, I don't know if you hear it, but this is what I hear and this is what I read. I read, It's the grace of God that purifies my heart. It's the grace of God that's come. That's where I need to go. When I need to say, Lord, purify my heart, I go to a grace of God that has already been set forth for us. 
And Jesus, like verse 14 says, Jesus has already given himself for us to redeem us from all of our lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Isn't that good news? The good news is in your fight for purity in your heart, you're not alone. You've got Jesus who is on your side. I'm getting an amen from a small child. I like that. <laughs> Thank you, Booths. So the good life belongs also to those who continually submit to total heart rehab. Okay, you and I, our hearts need a total rehab, a total makeover. That'd be a good show on Sunday nights. Make, what is it? Total makeover? Heart edition? I don't know. Right? The good life belongs to those who continually submit themselves to a total rehab of the heart. So we know the, the good life belongs to those who don't grab, and the good life belongs to those who submit to total heart rehab. Where does the Holy Spirit have his thumb on your heart this morning? Which one of those is God highlighting? Maybe it's both. At this time, I'd like to invite Natalie and Clark and the band to come on back up as we I want to help process this with you. Do you want the good life that Mark Watney described? Loving what you do, being really good at it, and willing to give yourself away for it? Well, what this scripture would indicate is that God wants you to have it more than you do. In other words, he wants to give that good life to you. He wants you to inherit the earth, and he wants you to have friendship with him along the way. Meekness and purity. How do we get to what Mark Watney had? Meekness and purity. Love and power together and continually relying on the grace of God to purify our motives. Which area needs attention this morning? Meekness or purity? Not grabbing or the total heart rehabbing? Why don't you stand up? We'll invite God into those places now. Father, thank you that you are the author of the good life. This whole world, this whole universe, families and tribes on the earth, it's all your idea. And so Jesus, 2,000 years ago, when you pulled some people to the side of a hill and said, hey, I want to tell you about the good life. You did it not because you were trying to be harsh with us, but actually on the contrary, you were sharing with us about who the Father was. That He's a God who loves to give stuff away. He wants to share with us power and authority. And He's a God who wants to be intimate with us along the way. That's who you are. And yet, there's the way things work on the earth and in the world. And the way things work is that, God, you're willing to share that authority with people who don't grab. You share it with the meek. And you're going to reveal yourself in intimacy with those who are pure. 
Jesus, you've made a way for us to be meek. And you've made a way for us to be pure. We confess that we need to tap into Jesus today. Because it's only Jesus. It's only by the grace of God that we can walk in the meekness and purity you prescribe for us. And so we submit to you again this morning. Rather than working ourselves up in a frenzy, we actually take an opposite response and we surrender. Say, oh, let the grace of God train us afresh to be meek. Let it be the grace of God that trains us again to be pure. We need you, Jesus.